All right, friends, it is good to be together. I hope you've had a wonderful summer weekend. Uh, my name's Ethan. If you're a guest with us today, glad you're here. You're in the right place. Uh, we're wrapping up our series, Road Trips, today. Uh, all summer, we've been just looking at different travel stories of the Bible, short journeys and long journeys, happy journeys and sad journeys. We got one more uh, today. Lots going on, uh, going on around here uh, right now. We had the men's golf tournament yesterday yesterday, which was amazing. 60 people came out to play. I got to play with a great foursome. Uh, a lot of you this morning, when you've seen me, you've asked me, how did we do? Uh, so I've got a little video here that basically I think will answer that question for you. Okay. We, in three shots, did as well as Brandon Linton in one, just for the record. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much our day. We, in three shots, did as much, did as well as everybody else in one. Although, you know, I got to thinking, if, if the game of golf is essentially hitting a ball with a stick, let's just be clear, we played more golf than anybody else out there. You know what I'm saying? There were some of these suckers, they played, they paid the same 50 bucks, they only got to hit the ball 57 times, you know? We paid the same amount, we got to hit it 90. So that's called a bargain right there, just in case you don't know. That's how this works. All right, hey, we got some big stuff coming up. Uh, next week, we kick off a new series. It's called Glad You Asked. It's based on questions that you all sent in way back in January. You know, we did this series in January, and we said we're going to do it again. Ask your questions. We had a ton sent in. We picked a handful that we're going to talk about the next few weeks. We're going to do that again over the next month. Submit your questions again, and we'll use them for another round of this coming up later. So that's glad you asked. We had some great questions. And when you hear the questions, you really are going to think, I'm so glad somebody asked because I have that question too. And then after that, we've got Love Everyone. Janet talked about that last week. It's going to be a church-wide initiative from kids to teens to adults to groups to everything as we think about what it would look like if we took Jesus seriously uh, when he says that we are meant to being uh, loving our family and loving our church and loving our neighbor and even loving our enemies. So that's coming up a little later this fall. All right, so but today we've got one last road trip. And it's a weird little road trip, a uh, quirky little trip. Um, it's, uh, it's King David, uh, the king of the now united kingdom of God's people, and a whole bunch of his crew. Uh, it's just them carrying the Ark of the Covenant from Obed-Edom's house to a tent in downtown Jerusalem. That's the whole journey. Uh, they go get the Ark of the Covenant at Obed-Edom's house, and they carry it to a tent in downtown Jerusalem. That's the, that's the whole thing. Uh, a little setup so you kind of know what's going on in this story. Uh, first, you got to know what is the Ark of the Covenant. And if you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, the classic movie, then that's it. That's pretty much it. No, that's not it at all. That's a movie. Um, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Um, well, I mean, frankly, it was a fancy box uh, into which they had put some of the important relics of their spiritual heritage. But the thing that was so important about the ark was that the ark was a symbol of the presence of God. If the ark was with you, that reminded you that God was with you. 
why was it being moved from Obed-Edom's house to uh, Jerusalem? Uh, well, David had recently conquered Jerusalem and made the city of Jerusalem. He was building a brand new city that was going to be his capital, and he wanted the ark to be there in the center where eventually his son Solomon would build a temple. Uh, he had tried to move it three months earlier. Uh, but along the way, someone touched it inappropriately, and they died, and that kind of freaked David out. So he's like, yeah, maybe we'll leave the ark at Obed-Edom's house. Yeah, we'll just leave it there. It's not too far away, but we're not bringing it into town. Um, but then three months later, he hears that, like, dude, since you left the ark at Obed-Edom's house, like, things have been rocking. Like, it is, he's basically being super blessed and everything. Like, things are great at Obed-Edom's house. And so now David's decided, okay, maybe we should do what God told us to do the first time, which was to bring the ark to Jerusalem, set up the tabernacle so we can begin the worship of God as God instructed us to all those years ago. And that's our little road trip. It's just that. Just they go to Obedium's house, they pick up the ark, and they take it back to Jerusalem. Um, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 2 Samuel chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 12, and, and here's the story. Now King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David uh, went to bring up the ark of God uh, from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps. He stopped, sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, and the point here is a linen ephod and nothing more. So, you know, think in his underwear, right? Wearing a loincloth, um, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. While he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, this is David's wife, uh, one of his wives, uh, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. He gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And then the people went to their homes. When David returned to bless his own household, Michael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would do. But David said to Michael, It was before the Lord, who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this. I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honor. What an odd little road trip. The whole crowd of people goes to get a box from Obed-Edom's house and carry it to the tabernacle in Jerusalem. 
And along the way, every six steps, they stop and sacrifice a bull and a fattened calf. It must have taken them forever to get to Jerusalem. And there's David leading the worship of trumpets and singers, dancing before the ark, barely dressed. What an odd little road trip. And I want to learn from this road trip with you today. I want to learn a few things uh, with you from this Bible story. But before we do, I need to tell you a little story from my life. Because I cannot think, not even for one second, about this Bible story here without remembering a song and a story uh, from when I sang that song. Uh, first, let me tell you about the song. It was 2002, and uh, David Crowder was, you know, king of Christian music in 2002, and um, he wrote this little song, uh, and, uh, and, and some of you may know it. Um, I could have Nathan come out and sing it, but if I'm going to tell the story in a second, you have to know what it sounds like when I sing it. If Nathan were to come out and sing it, um, it would sound really good, and you'd be like, oh, that's not that bad a song. Um, but so to get the full impact of the story, you've got to know what it sounds like uh, when I sing Sing it. Some of you will know this song. If you know this song, you're welcome to sing along. Uh, some of you will have never heard it before, and you'll probably be really glad that you'd never heard it before. Uh, but, but if you know the song, you're welcome to sing along. It goes like this. I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. I will dance, I will sing, to be mad for my king. Nothing, Lord, is hindering this passion in my soul. And I'll become even more undignified than this. Some may say it's foolishness, and I'll become even more undignified than this. Leave my pride by my side na 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 hey 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 and it goes on like that uh, that really is yeah thank you thank you yeah um so, you know, that's the whole song. You sing it 12 times. It was 2002. That's what we did in 2002 was we wrote 20 words. We sang them 20 times. That's what we did back then. Um, you may notice now we've gone to writing these songs that have tons and tons of words again. It's like hymns are all of a sudden back, but not in 2002. 20 words, 20 times, and you had a hit on your hands. Okay, now let me acknowledge a couple things uh, right up front. Um, that is not a great song. Right, okay, 20 years later, we can look back and recognize that's not a great piece of music. We get that. Um, and it doesn't, it isn't improved any by me being the one who plays it and sings it. I get that. Like, even if it was a mediocre song, like, it is not dressed up or improved by the fact that I'm the one who sings it. But nevertheless, back in the day, we sang this song a lot. You know, I could lead a week of camp. We could sing this song 15 times in one week. Or my youth group wanted to sing this song all the time. And so, uh, Youth Sunday came around, and we decided we got to teach this song to the whole congregation. And man, we sang it like we meant it, and we screamed it. I mean, it was, it was bad news, okay? 
And, and afterwards, word got back to me. Now, didn't, nobody said this to me directly, which I'm glad for. My little heart probably couldn't have taken it. But word got back to me um, that this song was not particularly appreciated by the broader uh, congregation. Uh, you know, quotes that made it back to me were things, you know, you know, thoughtful critiques like this. I hate that song. You know, some, some of that. Um, one critique that made it back to me uh, was, these kids should not be singing that song. They are already undignified enough as it is. They do not need to be singing a song about being increasingly undignified. Dignity is not one of their problems. Um, now, thankfully, nobody ever complained to me directly, uh, but the news got back that the song was not appreciated. And I remember at the time thinking, um, come on, this song is harmless. It's a fun little song. It helps them remember a Bible story. And that was kind of my whole defense. But I've been thinking about this song for the last 20 years. And I think my defense of this song was inadequate and misdirected. The point I should have made in that imaginary conversation that I never actually had was not, oh, come on, what'll it hurt? Let the kids enjoy their song. The kids need to remember the story. No, I think my point should have been, actually, the kids don't need this song. The kids got this covered. It's the adults who need this song. It, in fact, it's you. It's you precisely. But you, the person who felt like you, only thing you could do is wait till after church to go up and find somebody and tell them how much you hate that song. You're the person who needs it. You're the person who's forgotten how to celebrate like nobody's watching. You maybe even forgotten how to weep when your pain is real. See, we adults, we're the ones who temper our celebrations. Think first about what somebody else will think rather than the magnitude of our joy or our grief. Michael could have been at the worship service. There were men and women there. This was not a men's only event. She could have been there dancing alongside David. Except she didn't want to embarrass herself. Maybe she wasn't a good dancer, you know. But apparently, neither was David. And so she says to him, what do you think you're doing? You're embarrassing yourself. You're embarrassing me. You're embarrassing the dignity of the majesty of the king. Think of the people. What are they going to think? Get control of yourself. And David says, I wasn't thinking of the people. I wasn't dancing in front of the people, as you describe it. I was dancing in front of God. That's why I was dancing and celebrating. I was in the presence of God. And honestly, I don't care if I humiliate myself. I will get more undignified than that because this moment was about God. And I love David's defense. It wasn't some half-hearted defense like I gave. Like, oh, come on, it's good for the kids. No. He says, you think I'm weird? Because I danced naked in front of the ark? 
And all of us are going, yes, David, we think you're weird because you danced naked in front of the ark. And what he wants to respond is, actually, it seems to me that worship is the normal response to the presence of God. So think about this question. I want to ask two diagnostic questions of you. You know what diagnostic questions are, right? This is you go to the doctor, and the doctor asks a bunch of questions to try to figure out what's wrong with you. Where do you hurt? How have you been eating lately? Are you sleeping okay? Do you have any pain? Well, you know, all, these are diagnostic questions, and, and diagnostic questions don't always make us feel good because they might reveal something we wish wasn't true, but you have to ask them so you know what's going on. And here are the questions I want you to ask, and you don't have to tell me the answers. I don't care what your answers are and you don't care what my answers are. The only people that care what your answers are are you care what your answers are and God cares what your answers are. And so here are the questions. Ready? Who gets the glory in your life when things go well? When things are good, on a good day, where does the glory go? Are you proud of yourself? Does the glory go to you? Does the glory go to fate, to circumstance? Or does the glory go to God? Your first instinct. Don't tell me what you think the answer should be. Every, every seven-year-old in Sunday school class knows what the answer to that question should be. I have very minimal curiosity about what you think the answer to that question should be. I'm curious what you, the answer to the question is. Who gets the glory when things go well? Just instinctively, where do you turn? And where do you put your trust when things go poorly? These are diagnostic questions. You start to discover the answer to these questions. You start to find out what you worship. You start to find out what you worship. Who gets the glory when things go well? Where do you put your trust? God has been impressing these questions on my life the last six or seven weeks. They just occur to me all the time. Part of I've been studying this text, preparing for this message, but these questions are just there. And I just want to tell you the truth. I do not always like the answers that the Spirit of God reveals to me about me. Again, I don't care too much what your answers are, and you don't care too much what my answers are but you care what your answers are, and so does God. And I'm just telling you, as me and God have been talking about these questions, Ethan, Ethan, God's Spirit says, who gets the glory in your life when things go well? Where do you turn? Where does your praise rise? And where do you put your trust when things go poorly? A few weeks ago, we preached on in this road trip series, we preached on long, hard journeys. We talked about the exile and how do you stay faithful to God when your life is a long, hard journey. Some of you are in a long, hard journey right now. Maybe you want to go back and listen to that message. But that afternoon, after we talked about long, hard journey, uh, a friend sent me a text. And the text message is this. He said, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19 is my long, hard journey passage. That's what he said. We were talking about long, hard journeys. And he just texted me, hey, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19, that's my long, hard journey passage. And I know most of you have Habakkuk 3 memorized. I did not have it memorized, so I had to go look it up because I didn't know what it said. So I went and looked up Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. Here's what it said. 
Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I was so challenged by this, right? His long, hard journey passage is about worship. Not Romans 8, the promise that all things work out for good. You know, not not one of these passages that reminds us that the Lord is sovereign and the Lord will bless us. His long, hard journey passage says, when the fig tree doesn't bud and the olive crop fails and my barns are empty, I will worship. I'll be joyful in God, my Savior. And I feel like Habakkuk would have to say to me the same thing that David said to Michael. And and when I read this text, and I'm like, dude, that is weird. I think Habakkuk would say, you think I'm weird? I don't know. Feels pretty normal to me. If you've got the presence of God, you worship. Because what you discover from a text like this is if you are drawn to worship only when your circumstances are good, then what you worship is your circumstances and not your God. I'm just telling you, these diagnostic questions are not ones I particularly enjoy contemplating because I don't always like the diagnosis. If you are prone to worship, Only when your circumstances are good, then what you have discovered is that you worship your circumstances. David says to Michael, my worship doesn't make any sense to you because you're worried about other people and I'm dancing for God. Habakkuk says to me, Maybe to you. My worship doesn't make any sense to you because you're worshiping your circumstances and I'm worshiping God. I'm I'm just curious, is your worship as confusing to other people as David was confusing to Micah, Michael, and Habakkuk was confusing to Israel? Who gets the glory when things go well in your life? Who gets the glory? Where do you put your trust when things go poorly? David says, Michael, you've got it all wrong. What I'm doing is normal. What I'm doing is reasonable. Habakkuk says, you've got it all wrong. What I'm doing is reasonable. Yeah, the barns are empty, and yeah, the crop doesn't grow, but the presence of my God is with me, and that's where my rely, that's what I rely on, that's what I trust in, and God is with me, and so I worship. It reminds me what Paul says about reasonable worship, because that's what we're talking about here, right? We're trying to, Michael says, be reasonable in your worship, David. Yes, obviously worship a little bit, but keep your clothes on for crying out loud. Just be reasonable in your worship. I love what Paul says about reasonable worship, Romans chapter 12. And so, dear brothers and sisters, in view, once you've you've really looked at the magnificent mercy of God, 
Offer your bodies to God as living sacrifices, which is holy and pleasing to God. This is a reasonable act of worship. Paul says, if you want to worship God reasonably, offer your whole self as a sacrifice. And I'm just telling you, some part of me is like, Paul, that does not sound as reasonable as you think it is. And Paul says, I actually think it makes perfect sense. I just want you to wrestle a little bit with this just real simple reality, okay? I want to talk about worship a little bit. And uh, maybe some of us need to learn the lesson that Michael had to learn from David. That we were trying to hold on to our own dignity. We were caring more about our dignity than we were God's glory. And that's a problem. Here's what I want you to learn about worship. Ready? The way you approach worship is diagnostic. You can learn something about your faith by noticing how you approach worship. It's actually a very easy way. The way you approach worship reveals to, you, to your own spirit, if you will but listen, it reveals whether your attention is more on God or more on yourself. Whether your attention is more on God or on other people. Whether your attention is more on God or your circumstances. How you approach worship reveals that. If you find yourself, you know, things are going bad with me and so I will not sing God's praise. I'm worried that they'll think I sound funny, so I will not sing God's praise. Well, that reveals something, doesn't it? That you are more focused on others or more focused on your circumstances or more focused on yourself than you are on God. That's the first thing you got to know about worship is worship is diagnostic. It reveals the state of your heart. And for some of us, that is bad news this morning. We just look back over the worship experience you just, and you're like, oh my goodness, what that just revealed about me is that my heart is not focused on the presence of God. My heart is not trusting in the goodness of God. So if that's your situation and the diagnostic nature of worship leaves you with bad news, I've got some good news for you. Worship is also transformative. The discipline of worship turns your heart to God. I made fun of 2002 when they wrote 20 words and sang it 20 times, right? Okay, and I'm not saying that was the greatest era in Christian music, but I'm telling you, I stand here as a guy who needed to sing those words 20 times. First two times, I learned them. Second two times, I didn't even like them. Third two times, I got bored with them. But somewhere around the 10th or 11th or 12th time, I had to stop and ask, do I believe these words and will I turn my heart to their truth? I needed 20 times through. Maybe some of you do too. The discipline of worship is diagnostic. It reveals the state of our heart, but it is also transformative. And if you give yourself to it, it will turn your heart to God. Last thing I want you to know about worship, and this is what Michael missed that day, is that the discipline of worship is also declarative. It reveals your heart. It turns your heart to God, but it also announces to the world your priorities and passion. Why do you get up every morning and go to church on Sundays when everybody else heads to the lake and go fishing? Because there's nothing more important to you than declaring the sovereignty of God and rejoicing in his worth. The discipline of worship matters. We got to say today these words, to this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. And somebody might overhear you saying that and they might ask you, really? That third song we sang, do you really believe your only hope is Jesus? Worship becomes declarative and you get to say, actually, I do. 
You might even get to say, actually, you know, the first time I sang it, I only sort of believed it. And the second time I sang it, I wasn't sure if I believed it. But by the fifth time I sang it, I had re-anchored my soul in the most fundamental truth I know. To this I hold, my only hope is Jesus. It's a weird little road trip, I know. The whole nation goes to Obed-Edom's house to get a box. David takes off his clothes and dances all the way back. I get it. It's a super weird road trip. But David danced because he knew the answer to two questions. He knew who gets the glory when things go well. And he knew where to put his trust when things go poorly. And if you know the answer to those two questions, who gets the glory? It all belongs to God. Where can I put my trust? Only in my heavenly father. If you know the answer to those two questions, it is always the right time to worship. Let me pray for you and we're going to worship together again. God, oh God, we love you. We trust in you. And we come to you now to worship. In our worship, God, do the diagnostic where you need. Reveal in us right now if we have been living with false answers to these questions. If our glory has been in ourselves or our glory has been in our strength, teach us to glory only in you. If we have placed our trust anywhere else in the, in the power of the flesh and the wisdom of the world, teach us right now to re-attend our trust only to you. Let the worship of your church have its diagnostic function, revealing where our hearts are not yours. Let the worship of the church have its transforming function, re-anchoring our hope in you alone. And then as our voices gain in strength, may it have the declarative function you have given it, that we may declare to the world and to one another that our only hope is in you, Lord Jesus, that you are the faithful one, Father God, and in you we put our trust. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.